Good morning, everyone. April 29, 2011, there was a big wedding, a big British royal wedding. It was a big deal. I watched it here on the TV stations. There were many TV stations that were carrying it live. It was a big deal. Do you remember it? Who was the bride? Kate Middleton? Who was the groom? Prince William? But who was the star of the show? Pippa. You're right. It was Pippa the bridesmaid. The sister of the bride. The bridesmaid was the star. Jesus told a parable where 10 bridesmaids were the star of the show. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. This is a shocking parable. It's shocking not because it's bad, it's shocking because it's filled with surprises. The motto of this parable seems to be, be prepared to be shocked. In an economy of just 13 verses, not, a, not only are extraordinary pictures drawn, but most of us can remember the loaded conversations and the emotions that are evoked when we read through it. Emotions like panic, anxiety, just the sheer awkwardness. Some time ago, teenagers used to love to say, well, that was awkward. Well, this whole parable just seems to be awkward. Verse 1 begins with, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. There's a natural question there that we need to ask. At what time? At what time? In Matthew 24, the chapter before this, we have a whole array of signs and pictures of what the world will be like just before Jesus returns. But Matthew 25 is a picture of what his church will be like just before Jesus returns. This parable is about discipleship in the 21st century. The verb here is future passive, shall be like. The kingdom of heaven will be like. Now in Matthew 13, there is an array of other parables that begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. They're parables like the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, you know them. So the, all those parables begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. But this parable begins with the kingdom of heaven will be like. Matthew 25 is unique. Jesus told it as a future event. Now, for one reason or another, this parable is largely ignored. In fact, one scholar by the name of Snodgrass writes referring to all of his colleagues 
and he writes, clearly some scholars do not care for this parable, and often it's omitted or only treated briefly. And if we are honest, I'm guessing that there are some here today who don't really care for this parable as well. There's a penetrating sharpness to this parable of Matthew 25. This parable is so sharp, there's almost a warning message at the start. You'll notice the first two verses pre-announce important content that's coming. There's five foolish and five wise. It's almost like the TV announcements that they make about viewer discretion is advised. In other words, there's some shocks coming, just be prepared. Five foolish and five wise. Now, one of the other surprises in this parable is that in this story of a wedding, there is no bride, no mention of a bride. But the bride is there, if you do read carefully. As well as this, the parable is not known as the midnight groom. Instead, the parable is known about the bridesmaids, of all things. That in itself says something important about the great storyteller who told this parable. His purpose was never really about himself. His purpose is about humanity, about us. Even on his wedding day, it's about us. Also, there's no mention of any guests at this wedding. Yes, there's the unidentified voice that cries at the midnight hour, announcing the arrival of the bridegroom, but the whole focus is on the bridesmaids. We assume there are guests there, but there is no mention of the guests. In a sense, as we read this parable, there's no place to hide. We can only be one of the bridesmaids. And if we're really honest, gender doesn't come into play. This is not describing characteristics that are peculiar to just young women. The characteristics that are portrayed here appear in all humanity, in all nationalities, and in all cultures. Of the ten, the five wise, commentators describe them in various ways as thoughtful and sensible. But the five foolish, the few commentators that do address it, they describe them as unwise, thoughtless, and one even uses the word silly. And as we read this parable, if we're tempted to think, nah, this is not such a big deal, this is just an awkward moment when some people got embarrassed at a party. Well, notice what Ellen White wrote in the Review and Herald, August 19, 1890. She, she writes, this parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter. Notice with me verse 3. The foolish ones 
took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. What were those lamps? Well, if you're thinking of a little palm-shaped Herodian lamp that has a wick coming out from one end and a hole in the other and a little handle, lose that thought. That wasn't the lamps they were using. The lamps they used on occasions like this were long sticks. In poorer villages, they did use sticks. Wealthier areas, they used metallic shapes. And they had a flammable cloth at one end, which they covered with oil and lit. And it burnt brightly, but not for a long time. 15 minutes was about the maximum period that it burnt. It was to illuminate a vast, bright area for a short time. It was to announce the glorious arrival of the bridegroom. In much the same way, we welcome New Year's Eve with fireworks. These torches were to make a grand arrival and a big announcement. Now, a scholar by the name of Nolan makes the point that these torches, they actually had straps to them. And attached to the straps was the torch, but also a container for oil. You think with me. You couldn't take the torch without taking the container of oil. And they were designed in such a way that the head of the torch would be immersed into the container of oil. And it would soak up the oil much like a cookie soaks up the milk when you dunk a cookie in milk. And these five foolish virgins didn't even shake the oil container before they went to the wedding. Shake it to know that there was any oil in there whatsoever. Verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. A few things stand out in this verse. After a, a lot of information has been shared about the bridesmaids, we receive some details about the bridegroom himself. Who is this bridegroom? Well, the identity of the bride's bridegroom is unmistakable. Everything points to Jesus. The context, the content of the parable, it's specific. The bridegroom is clearly Jesus. But the other thing that captures our attention in this verse is the delay, isn't it? The delay. A long time. It seizes our attention because we can't help but put ourselves into this story because we are waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom, right? He's a long time in coming. Let's explore this delay a little more. Craig Keener says that all the virgins would have been ready for the groom had he arrived when they expected him. If he had have arrived in the daylight hours, no problem. But the reality was, was that weddings had a lot of negotiation before they actually took place. Both families would be negotiating the deal, so to speak. 
Some wanted a better deal, some would be stubborn. And it wasn't unheard of for a wedding to start late because of protracted negotiations. Now while the coming may be delayed, it is inevitable. He will return with power and great glory. But they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now the wise, the prepared, they were not superhuman. They were not superheroes. The human body is designed, created by the creator, to sleep when it's tired. Remember, it's the bridegroom who gives humanity the Sabbath rest. And the text is transparent here. They slept not because they'd given up on their faith or grown cold. They slept because they were tired. The sleep that the virgin slept was the beat of normal human life. And they're not condemned for sleeping in the middle of the night. When else are virtuous people meant to sleep? We're designed to sleep at midnight, aren't we? You know, verse 6, at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Seriously, what event starts at midnight? You know, because of technology, we'll sit up to midnight, well, some of us will, to watch a sporting event on the other side of the planet. But when it's taking place at its host venue, it's not taking place at midnight. Events finish at midnight. Things like weddings and parties, they finish at midnight. Some of us stay up to midnight to welcome in the new year, but we go to bed pretty soon after it. Has anyone ever been to a wedding that started at midnight? For us, it's unusual. Would you attend a church board meeting that started at midnight? We don't have services that's, that at midnight. We believe in the health message. We believe in sleeping. Now, Nolan makes this point. This is the bridegroom's great occasion, and he can arrive whenever he wants to. And when we do read it in the Greek, the Greek is less precise. It doesn't mean on the stroke of midnight. It means in the middle of the night sometime. But here's a critical point. At a moment's notice, all, all ten of the virgins were awake and ready for action. All of them. But in reality, it didn't matter when the bridegroom came. If he came during the dark hours, only five were, pre were prepared. It's a little like the great ocean liner, the Titanic. It was built of the finest materials, except for one thing, the rivets. The rivets, they couldn't obtain the best quality ones. They had to use inferior quality. The rivets that were supposed to hold everything together. It was popped rivets that caused the sinking of the liner when it struck the iceberg. It wasn't a matter of 
if the Titanic would sink, but when it would sink. The decisive moment of the story, the midnight cry. For Adventists, the midnight cry is loaded with all sorts of imagery. We named a publication, The Midnight Cry. Let's come to verses 7, 8 and 9. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy for yourselves. A few years years ago, I was in the beautiful country of Slovenia. I was suffering severely from jet lag. I'd been presenting at a conference in the morning, during the day, and I've got to tell you, that night, I was exhausted. I looked at my phone and noticed that it was half-charged. And I thought to myself, I don't need to charge that. I've just got to get into bed. But there was this prompting that spoke to me. Charge your phone. And I ignored it. I turned it off and slept soundly. The next morning, woke up, turned the phone on. And even though it had been turned off all night, what had happened to the charge? It had dropped a little more. Nah, that's a pain carried on during the day. I had a speaking session in the morning, turned it off while I was speaking, didn't want to be interrupted. At the end of the speaking session, I turned it on. The battery had dropped even more. And then all of a sudden, it started ringing. My older brother from Australia was calling me. It's always good to hear from a big brother. I love him. He had some news. Anthony, he said, yeah, he said, bad news. I said, who is it? And he said, it's dad. What's happened? Dad died. Dad, he was 84, but his mother was still alive. Incredibly healthy guy. At 84, he still had legs on him like one of Michelangelo's marble statues. Just phenomenally fit and healthy guy. Three weeks before that, he went in for a day procedure just to get a melanoma removed. Three weeks later, an infection that he picked up took over. Within 24 hours of that infection surfacing, he died. Total shock. And just at the time when I needed to be the pastor in the family, to minister to the family, my phone died. Do you know how hard it is to arrange travel from Slovenia to Australia without a cell phone and dodgy internet? It's hard work. Let's come back to the people in this parable. The ten virgins, the five foolish ones, They knew the bridegroom. It wasn't a case of they knew about the bridegroom. They knew him. They were waiting for him. They were supportive. They associated with the wise. They weren't argumentative. 
They weren't destructive. They didn't carry fire extinguishers with them. Their intention was to be on the right side, but they lacked the vital ingredient, oil. They had a car, but no gas. These bridesmaids, they didn't have to arrange the wedding. They only had to turn up with torches that worked. They had one job, a momentary role in the whole scheme of things. It's like when our school orchestra comes. Imagine if it came without the strings. Imagine the school orchestra without the percussion. You know, Jeff Fennell, he sits over there, and we're all, we know the music, we know what's coming, and we're thinking to ourselves, Jeff, hit it now, and bang, he gets it every time. But here they were, when the lights needed to come on, when the director says, lights, camera, action, only half the lights came on, only half the action, and half the cast was gone. It's unthinkable that it would happen, but it did. Could you imagine a Super Bowl? There we have the Super Bowl, and the ball steward turns up with balls that are flat. Even the Patriots turn up with the ball steward who has a pump to pump the balls up. Yeah. It's unthinkable that it would happen even in a game. Would a golfer turn up at the Masters with no golf clubs and still expect to win? It's lunacy. They're living in Disneyland. You know, it's, it's the words of Isaiah chapter 6. It's a case of the dogs that are mute that can't bark. Mark Finley writes on this. He writes, all the virgins were living on the verge of the kingdom of God. Yes, they all slept during the night, but the foolish also seemed to be sleeping in the day leading up to the event. The foolish virgins trusted in their past experience as if they had all that was needed for their spiritual lives. The height of Christian folly is neglecting personal soul culture and believing everything is all right. The foolish virgins neglected to nourish their souls. A wonderful book on the parables of Jesus is called Christ's Object Lessons. If you don't have it, get it and read it. Ellen White, in this book, she writes about this parable. She says, the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They have a regard for the truth. They advocated the truth. They're attracted to those who believe the truth, and they have not, but they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's workings. They have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus. They're in the right place at the right time. They're connected. They have all the paraphernalia, but they're missing something. Come back to verse 9. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. This may be a jolting factor in the parable that the wise wouldn't share. They didn't even look to see if they had spare oil. But you know, most of us, with our cars outside, we have an idea about how much gas is in the tank, whether there's enough to get us home, right? 
Most of us know the condition of our mortgages and our bank accounts. Without even having to look, we know what our status is really. A tennis player turning up to Wimbledon without a racket, expecting to win. A Christian, a Christian not being prepared for the second coming and expecting to be saved. I can remember leading a Bible study group with a group of teenager girls. I was anxious to hear their perspective on this parable. So we read the parable together and then discussed it. I asked them about the wise not sharing the oil. And the response of a 15-year-old was emphatic. Here are her words. Why should the wise jeopardize their entry into heaven when the foolish had every opportunity to have plenty of oil? Why should they risk heaven for them? Her words, not mine. And she's on the money. The stakes are too high. Folks, we can play loose with eternity. Sharing oil. You couldn't share oil with those torches. It's like trying to get the air out of one car tire into another car tire. You can't do it. It's like sharing a pen in an exam. Something you can't share. Brunner makes the important point. The thoughtful don't scold the thoughtlessness of the others and judge them. They don't take the time for this. Nothing is going to distract the wise from their single purpose, flaming torches for the bridegroom. Verse 10. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. So in the middle of the night, the foolish ones are out trying to buy oil. We can imagine them in that context. Can you imagine a shop being open in those dusty villages of the first century? Visiting friends, acquaintances, trying to call in favors, begging. And that's when the bridegroom arrives. In comparison with the seemingly long delay, the party starts with amazing alacrity. Not only does the banquet start, but more importantly, the door shuts. What's that remind us of? Noah comes to mind, doesn't he? This is big stuff. And then verse 11, later the others also come. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. You know, we're not told whether the foolish had been successful in their attempts to buy oil because it doesn't matter anymore. The whole purpose for the lamps has passed. They could have come back with a camel load of oil, but it's too late. As the sporting coaches say, you can go back to a place, but you can't go back to a time. And verse 12, but he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. In verse 11, the foolish had asked, probably begged, that the door be opened. 
There's no reference to the door opening. It seems as though the bridegroom speaks through the closed door. R.T. Francis points out that one of the qualifications to be a bridesmaid was to be a relative or friend of the bridegroom. The comparatively trivial lapse of a failure to be provided with oil has come to symbolize an ultimately false relationship. They are not part of Jesus' true family. And the bridegroom says, I don't know you. Brunner writes on this one key point. He says, some spiritual decisions can only be described as stupid. The decision to be a Christian, but not too much, which is close to the heart of the parable's meaning, is described as a stupid decision. And so we come to the actual take-home point of this parable that's in verse 13. Therefore, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. In other words, keep your faith. Protect, preserve, nourish your faith. By keeping watch, we hope. And when we hope, we live in joyous anticipation. And this overwhelms any embarrassment we may feel if we're seen to be watching. When we watch, we long for Jesus to return. When we watch, we pray to and through this Jesus. We meditate upon Jesus. We're immersed in him. When we watch, we seek our Bibles and we crave to hear the words of Jesus. When we watch, Jesus is a natural and integral part of our lives, accompany us, tending to us, guiding us, guarding us through every intersection and curve of our journey. When we watch, our views, values, and vision more approximate the beautiful views, values, and vision of Jesus. This morning, I'd like to conclude with the very words of Jesus himself. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour.